In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Sadly, the vast majority of times churches are in the news is because of some sort of sexual impropriety. That's not unique to the Catholic Church and our religious institutions here in Canada are not immune to scandal. However, the rise of new age megachurches has also been a trending topic. Full disclosure, not only am I religious, I consider myself a believer. I grew up in the Baptist church. But as I've grown older and my consumption habits and life realities changed, I yearned for a church that reflected my realities. Same communion, but more technology. Same fellowship, but more geared to millennials. These megachurches with concert-like performance choirs, TED Talk-like sermons, and app-like interaction seem to solve a problem for many people just like me, except when they became a problem. The level of reported sexual abuse and old-school absolute power corrupting absolutely was no longer supposed to be an issue. In fact, these new churches were supposed to provide an alternative, but the problematic power imbalance without checks and balances has remained constant with many megachurches. Sadly, that's the case for a church in Canada I called home, called The Meeting House. And the allegations there are not limited to their former lead pastor, Bruxy Cavey. So how can we structure churches, mega, mini, or otherwise, to help and not hurt? I'm Donovan Bennett, host of the Going Deep podcast, for Sportsnet, and once again this week, filling in for Jordan, who'll be back next week. This is The Big Story. Who better to ask than Rachel Brown, who not only at one point also attended the meeting house, but is now an investigative journalist and documentary producer who wrote about the meeting house in the Walrus. So Rachel, first off, thank you for taking the time to share this story because I know it's exhaustive work. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Good to be talking with you. Okay, so tell us a little bit about The Meeting House. Where is it? What is it? Yeah, The Meeting House is an evangelical megachurch. It was started in Oakville, Ontario, so about 30, 40 minutes outside of Toronto, uh, more than 25 years ago. And by the early 2000s or so, it become this really popular, internationally known uh, megachurch peaking at more than 5,000 members. There were 19 satellite sites uh, from the church around Ontario and about 200 home churches. So people would host informal gatherings in their homes on a weekly basis to talk about the Sunday sermons. And it kind of looked like your typical megachurch. Um, it was based in a movie theater and blasted sermons into other movie theaters uh, around the greater Toronto area. And their headquarters were in this 
37,000 square foot warehouse. Um, and the preachers or, you know, the main preacher was casually dressed and spoke on the stage out front and in front of a jumbotron. And the meeting house was one of the pioneers in recording and streaming their sermons so people around the world could tune in. They kind of uh, were a model for churches across Canada in terms of documenting and disseminating their services. So the meeting house branded itself as church for people who aren't into church. What did that actually mean in practice? Yeah, it's uh, this cheeky slogan um, that they put out, and it kind of represents the ethos and mission of the Meeting House. And they they really wanted to set themselves apart from what they saw as more rigid or dogmatic churches, especially churches like the Catholic Church. And that slogan is kind of their way of appealing to people who may have felt alienated or that they didn't belong in other churches. And the slogan really signaled to people that they were different from other churches and they really wanted to reach new groups of people, especially Christians who felt alienated by the church, you know, in the modern era. The modern era is key because in the interest of full disclosure, I actually attended the meeting house for a while with my wife and it appealed to me because it was much more close to my sensibilities. It wasn't my entire Sunday. It was highly entertaining, highly produced. You also attended for a time. I wonder if you're comfortable sharing what appealed to you about the meeting house? (laughs) Well, it's a bit of a caveat for me because um, I attended the church with my parents. I'm from Oakville originally. Um, my, My parents were very into church, going to church every Sunday. I was not. So I kind of was a reluctant attendee of church. And my parents sort of were testing out different evangelical churches around the early 2000s or so when I was in my mid-teens. And the Meeting House just happened to be one of those churches that they tried out and we kind of attended on and off for a few years. And around that time, like the evangelical community was really small in Oakville. And so a lot of people were talking about the Meeting House as this kind of cool and edgy place led by this interesting and dynamic preacher. And so my parents were drawn to it and I kind of was brought in uh, to go with them. Um, And so I really was someone who was reluctant to attend church. um, But I will admit that, you know, seeing the whole setup and the preacher and it was kind of this fun and casual environment that was certainly different from any other church I'd been to. Well, let's talk about the preacher, the lead pastor, Bruxy Cavi. His sermons or homilies were more like TED Talks, honestly, and many people gravitated to him in the meeting house because of it. So you've seen him in action, as have I. Paint a picture for our audience. Who is Bruxy? How did he get to eventually where he was? Bruxy was the lead teaching pastor at the Meeting House starting in 1997. And he had really come up through evangelical circles in the Toronto area, making him making a name for himself as a charismatic preacher, a street preacher, and Before he became a preacher, he was a party DJ, funnily enough. He was known as this subversive preacher talking about sort of the irreligiosity of Jesus and really talking about the importance of people having a direct and personal relationship with Jesus that was sort of free from the literal written word of the Bible and dogmatic rules and sort of a strict 
interpretation of the Bible. He has this large tattoo on his left inner forearm that says Leviticus 19.28. And actually that's the Old Testament verse that forbids tattoos. And so I think that that really kind of shows his subversiveness that he has literally written on his body. So he's kind of this walking contradiction. The Meeting House comes from this Anabaptist tradition from which Mennonites descended. So he preached a lot about nonviolence and peace. And he really drew people who wanted to hear that message, people who wanted to sort of be free from religious dogma and the literal rules-based interpretation of the Bible. But there was another side. When did sexual assault and misconduct allegations begin to surface about Cavi? Allegations of sexual misconduct against Bruxy started to emerge at the end of 2021. So he had been the lead teaching pastor at the Meeting House for about 25 years um, at that point. So he was really established as the leader. And when these allegations came out, it was really devastating to the church itself, its reputation. And from there, uh, a lot of other troubling allegations emerged. And so, you know, the allegations that came out against Bruxy were really sort of the beginning of the end of this scandal um, within the meeting house. So to date, how many accusations is he facing? So he is currently facing one charge of sexual assault that was laid by the Hamilton police in May of 2022. And in total, um, there are four sets of allegations against Bruxy, ranging from the one sexual assault charge, sexual abuse allegations, and sexual misconduct. He denies that any criminal wrongdoing took place. Um, His lawyer told me that he's pleading not guilty in, in his trial, which is set to take place in February 2024. There have been no other criminal charges laid regarding those other allegations, but he did participate in an internal church investigation into those allegations that found them to be substantiated. So in the moment, how did he respond to those allegations? What was his statement or explanation? So when the first woman came forward, At the end of 2021, it was later revealed in an interview she gave to the Toronto Star that she was a member of the congregation who says that she began receiving pastoral counseling from Bruxy when she was in her 20s and he was in his 40s. She says that eventually the relationship became sexual in nature and the woman says that she was sexually assaulted and she alleges that he committed clergy sexual abuse. His response was to put out a statement on his now deleted personal website. He describes the relationship with this woman as an extramarital affair, calling it, quote, his greatest failure, his darkest sin. Um, And he said at the time that he takes full responsibility for his actions, this was prior to the criminal charge being laid. He admitted that he was irresponsible in his role as spiritual leader, but he has denied any criminal wrongdoing in that case. Um, But to him, at least how he characterized it before, uh, was an extramarital affair that was irresponsible on his part. So these are explosive allegations. How did church leadership and his supporters alike within the congregation respond to these reports? The church took action at the beginning. They hired a victim advocate to sort of be 
the conduit between any victims or people coming forward with concerns and allegations and the church. They also hired a third-party investigator, so a third-party lawyer to investigate claims against Bruxy as well as any other allegations that came forward. The church was criticized at the outset for initially describing Bruxy's actions as sexual misconduct and not clergy sexual abuse. They later ended up updating their definition of sexual abuse and applied that to later allegations. Um, But the church did, you know, sort of spring into action. Again, they faced criticism for how they've dealt with that. And since then, they've been putting up regular updates on their websites and they've been hosting town halls and that sort of thing. And uh, with regards to responses from the congregation, um, it seems to be at least a few months ago, it was quite divided. There's a lot of people who support Bruxy and there's a lot of people who feel like he's being mistreated. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who are glad to see that victims are being supported and that leadership is being held accountable for some pretty egregious things. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. It's important to center the victim in these conversations. What was the response by the congregation and the church to her? Again, it's it's divided. Um, there are a few people who have been critical of, of the entire process. There are people who feel like this shouldn't be happening to Brexy, but there's a lot of people who feel um, like her voice needs to be heard. The voices of victims need to be heard and... I think the church leadership feels strongly that the voices of victims need to be taken seriously. So I guess the biggest question is, is this a failure of sin or a failure of system? This went beyond just Bruxy, right? How pervasive was sexual misconduct within the church? How many other staff members were implicated? Yeah, following the accusations against Bruxy coming forward, the church revealed sexual abuse and misconduct allegations against two other church leaders. They conducted internal investigations about sexual misconduct and abuse against a former senior pastor and a former worship leader, both of whom are no longer with the church. And at the same time, these discussions around what was happening with Bruxy and other more recent instances unearthed previously known criminal convictions against two youth pastors going back to around the mid-2000s, from about 2008 to 2014. Those were known cases where two youth pastors separately were charged with sexual assault and exploitation regarding youth members of the meeting house in Oakville. But over the years, details of those cases sort of got lost. People didn't really know about them. And With people starting to discuss them again in a new light, the church was under renewed scrutiny for how they acted or didn't act in response to those cases at the time. And 
it's important to note that as well, people started to see this as part of a broader pattern as opposed to, you know, a couple of bad apples in the church. And so, yeah, it unearthed this, I would say, systemic pattern of wrongdoing among church leadership at the meeting house. So I guess that leads me to wonder, is this bad luck or bad process for the meeting house to find themselves in a scenario where there are multiple sexual offenders with access to their congregation in a limited amount of time. I think it points to um, a lack of protocol that existed certainly in the early 2000s when they were expanding really quickly. Um, And it was kind of this environment that was more casual, informal. And in that informality and in that casualness, there was at the same time a lack of process for people to raise concerns that they may have felt or processes in place to ensure that the entire church body was aware of any wrongdoing that the church became aware of. And so at the same time, I also spoke with a lot of former and current meeting house members who over the years say that it was not a place that would receive negative feedback. And there was a lot being done to protect leadership. So with this lack of protocol in place, especially in the early 2000s. And that changed over time. But with that lack of protocol and lack of ability to receive and implement concerns around negativity, it gave rise to this environment that was ripe for abuse and ripe for sweeping concerns under the rug. Well, that's one aspect that you really were able to unpack and find the nuance in in your article in reference to this type of scandal that has happened, sadly, at several megachurches. There's a great quote in your piece from Peter Sherman, a Christian academic who wrote a book about the meaning has that I'd like to read. He said to you, the power in politics and organizational liabilities that are part of such a large organization that create success are themselves the seeds of their unraveling. It's powerful. Can you explain what you took from, from him saying that? Yeah, I think stepping back a little bit to mega churches in general, they were built on promises to bring faith into the modern age, into modernity. And they were meant to be, uh, as I say in the piece, an antidote to the scandals of traditional churches, like the Catholic Church, for example. Um, But instead, underneath, they showed repeatedly that they're similar to the religious institutions they sought to rise above from. And I think what Peter is referring to with these seeds are things like setting up the church around a highly charismatic figure. So basically, putting all their eggs in one basket where if something as innocuous as Bruxy leaving the church or even retiring happened, that it would have this ripple effect and potentially harmful effect for the church, let alone if there's abuse accusations swirling around Bruxy, then again, the fate of the church is in the hands of this one person. So by setting up the church on these people, on these singular people who are, you know, humans are flawed and there's the potential for for power imbalances here. It's kind of setting themselves up to be at the whim or at the fate of this one particular person. So setting up mega churches around these charismatic figures leads to the potential for abuse and it leads to the, to the potential for them to experience a downfall should anything happen to those leaders. 
And what has since happened to the meeting house? How have they been able to weather this onslaught of uh, issues within the church? I think the meeting house is continuing to struggle with how to deal with this, um, the accusations, the fallout, the criticism. Membership has dwindled from their peak of around 5,000 members to around 2,000 or so members. You know, that's due in part to what happened with the impacts of the pandemic, but it's also because of the scandal surrounding Brexy and other church leaders. Um, their finances have also taken a huge hit. And I think moving forward, we're going to see a much smaller meeting house that is going to have to contend with the ways in which power is distributed among leaders and how they can deal with um, issues around accountability and reporting of uh, negative experiences and that sort of thing. I know they are trying to rebuild and heal. They're hosting town halls. Um, they had one just a few days ago that was about going through their history as a church, and they touched on a lot of these um, difficult conversations. But I have to admit, I'm not sure if the church will ever bounce back to what it was. And I guess there is a question as to whether or not it should bounce back to what it was. What has accountability looked like for those former meeting house leaders? Are there criminal proceedings, civil suits? There's only criminal proceedings against Bruxy KV for the one count of sexual assault. The other members, I mean, the two youth pastors served time in prison for uh, their criminal convictions pertaining to sexual assault and exploitation against young members of the meeting house uh, many years ago. And the church has been public about the accusations against um, the two other leaders as well. So we'll have to see what happens with Bruxy in the long term. Looking at the church and where it sits more broadly, we've heard of and talked about extensively the Me Too movement, but what is the Church Too movement? How has that conversation started to evolve? Yeah, so a few years after the Me Too movement really took off, this was around the fall of 2017 that the hashtag Church Too movement took off. And it was about identifying the prevalence of sexual assault and abuse at work in Christian circles and evangelical circles. And it was really a gathering of testimonies from survivors that exposed and called out widespread sexual abuse among clergies around the world. And so we saw a lot of investigative reporting, a lot of people coming out and sharing their stories about abuse that they'd experienced at the church. So it was a real moment of this, the start of a real moment of reckoning in Christian circles. And it's interesting that the church too movement has been shown to really resonate with female survivors of clergy sexual abuse because a lot of the conversations that we hear about have to do with male survivors, particularly with regards to the Catholic Church. So um, it really was the start of, of this reckoning in evangelical and Christian circles. And, and still to this day, we're seeing the ripple effects of it. There's, there's damning reports of sexual abuse and cover-ups in the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. We're seeing what's happening with the Meeting House. So Church too is really really ongoing. It's sort of an outflow of, of the Me Too movement specific to churches. So much of investigative reporting is finding the facts and finding people to tell their stories and how they feel about those facts. But based off of everything that you've researched and written and the conversation you've had, 
are, are there red flags to look out for a way forward for modern megachurches in a way that's helpful, not hurtful? I mean, on a personal note, I am an atheist, so I don't really have much to say in terms of advice I can give for, for people looking for spiritual communion, but I do report on religion. I do study it. And I think what, what I've learned in this reporting is the importance of, as one of the former members of the meeting house told me, the importance of having the ability for institutions, religious or otherwise, frankly, to accept negative feedback and criticism and to act on that and to have specific protocols for for doing that. I also think it's really important for people to be critical of power structures. So in the case of the meeting house, what does it mean to have one person who holds such power? I think that's an important question for for people to ask about not only mega churches, but any sort of institution or any sort of community. I think, you know, that's a pretty broad strokes answer, but I think, you know, people ought to be critical about the way that power is distributed and what sorts of accountability measures are are in place. Well, it's also important to report on these issues and shine some sunlight on them. And hopefully that can be a little bit of a disinfectant. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for sharing uh, the story with me. Thanks, Donovan. Rachel Brown is an investigative journalist and documentary producer who wrote about the meeting house in The Walrus. That was The Big Story. For more, head to our website, thebigstorypodcast.ca. While on your phone, you can find us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN, or you can email us old school. Hello at the Big Story Podcast.ca. You can also call us super old school and leave a voicemail at 416-935-5935. We're available in every single podcast player and on every smart speaker. All you have to do is this. Just ask your smart speaker to play the Big Story Podcast. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'm Donovan Bennett sitting in for JHR. He'll be back soon. We'll talk then. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.